1: Finally done it. For so long the solution eluded you. You explored every angle and pursued the answer in the waking world of mathematics and the fragmented landscape of dreams. But here it is: the Serenian engine, a functional technological means of transporting humanity not only at greater speeds between planets, but to other stars. You fall to your knees before its golden splendor. You swipe through the air at your side and summon a holographic keypad. It's time to tell the corporation what you've achieved. But before you can initiate the command, the air shimmers with a strange energy. A flash of panic burns through you as you fear some unforeseen side effect of the engine's power. Reality parts, and a glowing figure slips through the incision. It speaks to you in a voice like a whisper.
0: Professor Dydala. what are you? I am a messenger from a future age. Come to warn you. Impossible.
1: Paradoxical.
0: No more so than your engine. It must be destroyed.
1: Then you have come to kill me.
0: I cannot. But you can deactivate this machine, scatter its plans to the four winds, and leave the future untarnished by its power.
1: But why should I do that? I built it to open up the cosmos to spread humanity beyond Earth, to safeguard us against destruction.
0: And in doing so create hell worlds beyond number, places where the descendants of humanity writhe in poverty, misery, and pain. The mass of their collective suffering dwarfs all of humanity's achievements in my time, reducing the human experience to a median of immoral horror. And I know, for I have walked the mire and ruin of each world, I have looked into their eyes and I ask you now, in the hope that no one else will retrace your steps, to please turn off the machine.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we wanted to talk about the question of, hey, what if we accidentally turn the Milky Way into a living hell? <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, We're getting into
3: this topic um, of astronomical suffering, and we, we tried to make sure the title had a spin of far-future science fiction to it, and we decided to, to kick things off with a, a nice hefty slice of uh, original sci-fi uh, to, you know, to firmly ground the conversation, because this is going to be a conversation that gets into a lot of uh, far-future territory, speculative science fiction territory, but ultimately wrestling with some, some real philosophical uh, considerations about the nature of humanity and, and how we go about our decision-making.
1: Yeah. um, So one thing that this topic makes me think about, maybe a good place to start is How much of future thinking among people, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people who like to think about the far future just assumes space colonization as a given, like does not interrogate the idea at all, does not say like, you know, would it be good to colonize other planets, other star systems and stuff? It just assumes, yeah, I mean, of course, that's what you do. Humans, you know, they spread over the surface of the earth and now they'll keep spreading on into other little rocks in space. But science fiction was so concerned with the question of whether or not it could, it didn't stop to think of it should. Yes,
3: the the Ian Malcolm uh, (laughs) factor uh, often uh, features into our conversations here. Because, yeah, for, for many, if not most of us, colonization of other worlds has kind of always seemed humanity's destiny. And, you know, part of it is simply the extrapolation of our terrestrial ideals and ambitions and just the, the sort of uh, flow of, of world history. Uh, we're just taking that and applying it to other worlds. Our species spread from continent to continent, finally overtaking every last, uh, you know, truly habitable island in the global ocean. And so we've long dreamt of voyaging off planet to whatever islands of life or potential life we might find or create in this cosmic ocean. Now, I know most of you consume science fiction, so we don't have to tell you how pervasive the dream happens to be. You know, Star Trek continues to stand as a towering, optimistic example of how this might play out. But we also see it in all manner of sci-fi visions, you know, from the near future gritty world of something like The Expanse or Altered Carbon, you know, to far reaching worlds like Dune, Star
1: Wars, uh, the culture series and many, many, many more. I think Dune might be a good example for us to keep in mind throughout this episode, though, because while I don't recall in Dune there being much of a question about the general project of colonizing worlds other than than humanity's origin on Earth— Dune at least does present a vision of a planet that is both inhabited and completely crappy, just completely inhospitable in every way. Like, we shouldn't be there, and yet we're there because we have to be. Now, in Dune, that's because of demand for a particular resource that's only generated on this planet, but you could imagine other scenarios where there could be a planet that's just really not hospitable to human life in any way, except we just have to be... Be there maybe because it is the only rock that we can stand on within reach yeah and there's also that
3: kind of what uh, Nietzschean quality to some of the worlds too like because there's of course Arrakis and then there's the the the, the home world of the Sardakur, the the um, you know the elite soldiers of the empire which is described as a quote-unquote hell world uh, the idea yeah. that it's just so brutal there that it it creates these super soldiers, and of course, uh, Arrakis creates uh, their own elite um, uh, fighting force as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think Dune is a great one to continually return to.
1: The uh, I think the world that the Sardukar troops come from is supposed to be sort of like the planet where uh, the Superman villain Doomsday comes from, right? Where he's oh, just yes. like made stronger and stronger by by being subjected to every form of punishment and suffering day in day out. Yes, yeah, exactly, and and that, that idea. It's covered in, I think, some other works as well. I know
3: Ian uh, M. Banks in the Culture Series has a, has a species that shows up that is biologically immortal, and part of that is tied to the fact that it emerges from such a hostile and competitive uh, ecosystem uh, that, like, natural death was just never part of its, of its uh, physiology.
1: You know, I will say uh, there's another uh, science fiction book that I've talked about on the show before. I think I recommended it one year for summer reading that I, I really enjoyed, specifically because it asks a question along these lines. It's uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's novel Aurora, which is about a generation starship that has a colonization mission, um, you know, trying to go to another star system and, and colonize another habitable planet. But a, a big theme of that book is the question of just, like, how... How special Earth might be and ways in which we we don't realize that leaving Earth is just abandoning everything that we depend upon and everything that makes life good. And so ultimately, there is kind of a question in the book like, well, maybe should we should we actually have our sights set on other planets? Maybe there's something uh, – Inescapably perfect about Earth, and instead we should focus on making Earth as habitable as possible for as long as possible. Um, and and I remember I think reading some reviews of this book that criticized it essentially as being like pessimistic and a downer for for in some ways being characterized as anti space exploration, which I'm not sure the book exactly is, but it at least explores possibilities in that space, uh, which I, which I think is fascinating and very worth considering.
3: Yeah, I think the in, and, and, you know, actually, uh, Christian and I recorded an episode years ago called The Case Against Space that went into some cases that could be made against uh, spending time and resources and, and money on uh, on space exploration, you know, uh, just to explore the other side. But but I think that. One thing we get into here is the kind of like soft futurism that we sometimes uh, engage in, like without really thinking long and hard about the rigors of creating an an off-world colony of, say, colonizing and terraforming Mars. You just kind of tuck it away in the back of your mind as like, oh, well, we have a plan B. and 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 in reality we we don't really have a plan b there is no earth 2 um we're talking about very um inhospitable worlds extreme environments places that are uh, even the closest uh, uh locations we could go to are far far away and and we've touched on the the, the like the challenges of of mars on the show before uh, but it, it's it's a danger to to just sort of categorize that casually in the back of your head as like a reason to not fully invest in the health of this planet.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, you don't want to be going around thinking like, well, we got a backup plan. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean long term, we might, but that is in no way a guarantee. Yeah, but uh, but I do want to stress that, you know, speaking for
3: myself, I, I certainly still buy into this this future. I think it is an optimistic vision for the future for the most part. But like all <laughs> all things considering the, the future, you know, we have to we have to have a balance of optimism and realism and you have to entertain
1: some of the uh, the worst case scenarios as well. Oh, totally. I mean, I want to be clear that in talking about this today, we're not trying to make the case that space colonization is bad. We're just saying here are some questions to consider. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think a large
3: part of this whole dream, this vision of expanding to other worlds, it's based in humanity's innate desire to explore and expand. It's our scientific zeal, uh, you know, and and this is part of what makes humanity great, though it also leeches into our vanity and pride. And more to the point, it is an eventuality that our space programs continue to work towards. You know, such dreams, uh, sci-fi visions uh, have animated the best minds among us for decades and decades. And it seems ultimately a question of, of when, not if, a human being will, for instance, ever stand on the surface of Mars.
1: Well, I think another reason that the idea of space exploration is so popular among, like, optimistic future-thinking people is, like, it seems like it is the half of adventure that is not uh, that is not antagonistic and violent. I mean, I would say adventure has two main components. One is, like... Exploration and discovery, and the other is kind of this violent conquest thing. And, you know, and we like the sense of adventure, but maybe we, we want a, a way to have adventure that doesn't involve subjugation and violent conquest of whatever you find when you get somewhere. And so, uh, and so space exploration seems like a, a perfect candidate for that kind of spirit of adventure, right? To fulfill that drive without doing something harmful. Maybe there, there are these dead rocks out in the universe. That we could adventure to and we could explore without having to make it into a a struggle of conquest and war. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, certainly, you know, there's sci fi visions that, that drag those elements in. And as we'll discuss, there are some, it's, it's not that, that space colonization is a risk free venture. It's not like there, there are not things that we could potentially break while out there. But, but yeah, it does seem an optimist. The idea of exploring Mars, uh, for the most part, seems far. Uh, less full of conflict and horror than, say, uh, you know, Europeans' history of exploring the New World. Right. Now, another huge angle to this, though, is uh, is that there is this idea that humanity must eventually leave Earth in order to survive long term in a dangerous universe and to thwart various existential risks. Stephen Hawking was an advocate of this line of thinking, a- among many others.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it, Stephen Hawking is not wrong in saying this. I mean, there are risks to earth. And uh, it, it, here's a, here's an analogy maybe for, uh, for people who are trying to, like, plan their retirement savings or whatever. Is it good to put all of your retirement savings in the stock of one company? Mm-hmm. Any, any investment manager or whatever would tell you, don't do that. You need to diversify your investments in order to make sure that, you know, your, that your money is safe. Uh, you've got to invest in multiple different things because if something bad happens to one company and you're totally invested there, you could lose everything. Some people, I think, look at, uh, you know, the planetary habitation of humans in the long term the same way. Catastrophic things can happen to planets. There, there can be catastrophic changes to the biosphere of a planet. And so if you don't spread out to other planets over time, the risk just keeps accumulating more and more that something is going to happen that'll cause us to blink out of existence. Yeah, and and we discussed
3: many of these uh, on the show before, you know, things such as uh, near-Earth objects uh, potentially colliding uh, uh, with the planet. Uh, Also, things bound to human technology like climate change, nuclear war, and and other various examples, some some more uh, futuristic than others. Uh, But most given known potential existential risks you know, with them, there are there are certainly ways to attempt to safeguard against them, at least as far as, as ones that are technologically within our limits of control. Uh, now, can we control ourselves? Arguably, yes, that's possible, even if it tends to not be the case a lot of the time in human affairs. Uh, can we track and mitigate incoming NEOs? Yeah, we're, we're continuing to improve our capabilities in that department. But as we get into long-term concerns about, say, the life of the sun, uh, we'd really need to be higher on the Kardashev scale to do anything about it. And then there's the, also the issue of, of outside context problems, uh, which is a which are problems that, by nef- definition, a civilization cannot anticipate. Uh, as Ian M. Banks explained in, the, in his book *Excession*, uh, which is where the term was coined, most civilizations encounter
1: just a one outside context problem, and that is what does them in. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. What's an example of an outside context problem? I guess the definition of it would be that it's something that we're not really envisioning right now. But maybe the easiest example would be an encounter with a with a totally uh, incomprehensible alien species or something. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, that that's that's the the big one. Um, and certainly like one example that is often thrown out, I think Banks made this uh, analogy as well, is uh, if you are uh, one of the native peoples of, say, South America, and then Europeans show up on your shore in these in these ships with horses and all this technology, um, it is not something they anticipated. And there were and there were other aspects of that problem that they They just could not anticipate, say, the disease factor. And uh, and they ultimately I mean, they it's not that they were completely wiped out, but obviously that whole situation was was an apocalypse uh, for the peoples
1: of the new world. But another thing we should emphasize again that you just mentioned a second ago is that, I mean, one thing we can be sure of, even if we don't encounter any outside context problems, is there's basically an expiration date for life on Earth that has nothing to do with, like, uh, stochastic events like uh, near-Earth object impacts or something. It's just going to be the, the lifespan of the sun. Eventually, the mm-hmm. sun is going to swell. It's going to turn into a, a, a red giant, and, and Earth will get too hot to live on. There, there will be no life here anymore.
3: Yeah, and, and a lot of times this can seem like ridiculous to worry about, right? Like, like come on, humanity, let's let's get through July uh, and right, not right, worry right. about the, the long-term t- <laughs> uh, survival of the human race and what happens when uh, when the sun burns out of energy. I mean, we,
1: we think the, the habitable Earth is already probably more than halfway through its lifespan. You know, Earth is about four and a half billion years old, probably within, um, a, a, you know, it's hard to put an exact number on it, but I think something like four billion years from now, we can be Pretty sure that that Earth is just going to be done like that there will be no more life here at that point. It will just be too hot Now, four billion years is a long time, right? you know that, that was enough time to, for single cells to evolve into humans who are capable of appreciating the Robocop movies. you know <laughs> so like uh, it, it is a long time. It's not like something you need to worry about tomorrow, but at the same time, if you tr- are trying to imagine the far future, something would have to happen if we wanted to go on beyond that point. Yeah, and
3: I, and I think that's reasonable, though also, of course, it, it is we are talking about the far future. Um, so in, in this episode, we thought we'd explore some of the moral arguments that are ultimately against the colonization of other worlds. The concern, again, to, to quote Ian Malcolm, is not can we do it, but should we do it? What would the moral cost be uh, to a true Terran diaspora? If we were to expand beyond the Earth, What would it cost us and would it be worth it? Uh, What are some of the philosophical concerns here?
1: Well, maybe we should take a quick break and then when we come back, we can talk about them.
3: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. So one of the key factors in this entire discussion has to do with the morality of human existence and and what you might think of as sort of the median human condition. Uh, So consider this question. Is human existence, on average, a reality worth sustaining and propagating? Uh, you know, I, I know. Obviously, it's it's not like we could do anything but that. I mean, that's what life does, and we are we are life. No matter how self aware we've become, or how you know self aware we've come to believe we are, uh, we are still just we are life and life propagates.
1: Yeah, and there are, of course, people who believe, you know, that humans should voluntarily go extinct. That is actually a point of view some people have. I kind of – and I don't mean to question everyone who says this, but with at least some of the people who say that, I kind of question their sincerity. I mean, mm-hmm. with some of the people who say that, I I think they're probably just saying that to be interesting or to be shocking, not because they really believe humans should disappear.
3: Right, or to sort of ex- – to overexpress a sentiment you know yeah to to sort of drive home a point like like i think i've probably in in the past i've probably said something to the effect that i would i would be totally cool with the with the male gender going extinct and the the, the species becoming <laughs> exclusively female um uh, but you know now i have a son and uh you know i i can't rationally make that argument you know um and it and it was ultimately you know not a Completely rational argument, maybe you know a little attention seeking and a little, uh, you know, trying to to, to make a point. Uh, I suppose. But uh, but still, you know, all of these sort of questions and considerations do get into bigger questions about like, what are we doing? Like, what is the, what, and what are we doing wrong? And then what is the, the overall shape of life? This is, you know, real, this is the meat of uh, philosophy and theology. Uh, you know, why is there so much suffering in the world? Is life suffering? Uh, does all the suffering make the good parts worth having? Is a miserable life, better than no life at all uh, are there fates worse than death i mean this is th- th- these are questions we continue to wrestle with and then there's also the big, a big question of inequality here. If only a small fraction of the human population, such as, you know, the much-touted 1 or, percent or even some larger percentile, depending on what your parameters are, if only this small fraction of the population has access to true comfort, health, happiness, or whatever your gauge happens to be, then what does that say about the overall health of the system? If the popular idea of what it is to be human is, say, the lifestyle one sees in a popular television show, be it Friends or the Kardashians or even like Seinfeld, you know, a nice sizable apartment and all, Uh, (laughs) then then how do we square uh, how out of proportion these visions are with our reality or sort of the standard reality on Earth? And likewise, we might wonder which ideal we're envisioning uh, to be installed in an off-world colony, what are we spreading to other worlds beyond basic human presence and just sort of the staked flag of empire? Or perhaps, ideally, we envision that such off-world realities would encompass just a vast array of emotional states, uh, you know, and that things would even out. Tomorrow will be like today, and the arc of the moral universe, you know, will will bend towards justice and so forth. So, at this point, I want to I want to turn to this this subject of astronomical suffering. Uh, And this comes from a paper by uh, Marko uh, Kovic, uh, not to be confused with Takeshi Kovacs, uh, which we we referenced earlier. This is uh, uh, K-O-V-I-C, with the uh, the last part having a, a ch uh, pronunciation like in chocolate. So uh so uh, Kovich is a Swiss social scientist and uh, who is the co-founder and CEO of the consulting firm Ars Cognitans and whose work has been featured in uh Ian magazine uh, among other places. He also has uh, written extensively in German in the German language and hosts a German language podcast titled Den Katelier, uh, which you can you can actually you can look up it is D E N K A T-E-L-I-E-R dot X-Y-Z. So if you were a German speaker, uh, check that out. It's uh, I I would check it out if my German were not just the most basic level ever. Uh,
1: So you wanted to do this topic today because you you read an article
3: by Kovic, right? Yeah, it published in um, it's an open science framework publication titled Risks of Space Colonization. Okay. you can access the the full paper online, and, and I urge everyone to do so because it's a thought-provoking read, and it really puts the whole enterprise of off-world colonies under philosophical scrutiny. Not to say that he doesn't touch on ideas that I think are already out there in the uh, in the zeitgeist and in the you know the science fiction whole consideration of the future, uh, but, but it's really a, a great write-up. We're not going to go through everything uh, Kovic discusses here because he certainly discusses the risks and rewards of space colonization, including the notion that the acceleration of space colonization uh, capability would just increase the existential risks coming at us like all the technological ways that we could potentially destroy ourselves or make life worse uh, on the planet that uh, being able to to move at great speeds to have orbital you know supremacy that these things would just uh, create more
1: ways for us to hurt ourselves I mean, I feel like we're doing a bad enough job already at avoiding uh, species level risks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but when you consider potential technologies like
3: you know rods from God, and the idea that you know you wouldn't even need um, uh, explosives if you had orbital supremacy if you had enough just mass up there in orbit that you could drop down things like that it's the ultimate high ground yeah exactly Uh, and he also discusses contact with microbial extraterrestrial extraterrestrial life uh, which we've discussed on the show before secession and independence reactionary colonies intercolonial conflict which is another topic we've definitely uh, produced episodes on uh, and much much more But I wanted to focus in on some of the other ideas he outlines here, such as the risk of moral catastrophes, quote, massively undesirable outcomes of engaging in space colonization, but without any intent for or complacency towards doing harm. And the the first of these that he brings up is the astronomical populations ethics conundrum. And to better understand that, we have to first consider what is known as the repugnant conclusion.
1: Yeah, so, um, if, if we got any, uh, moral philosophy nerds out there, you will recognize this immediately. The idea of the repugnant conclusion is, uh, it's a very popular, question in the the domain of population ethics, this sub-branch of ethics about how to know what's the right thing to do when considering the creation and, and maintenance of populations of people. Uh, so the repugnant conclusion is also known as the mere addition problem, and it was famously articulated by the British philosopher Derek Parfit in his 1984 book, Reasons and Persons. As often understood today, the repugnant conclusion takes the form of a paradox about our intuitions on population ethics. Uh, And there are a lot of ways of expressing or illustrating this paradox, but to make it as simple and as clear as I can, the repugnant conclusion is a statement like this, uh, and this is a quote from Derek Parfit, quote, For any possible population of at least 10 billion people, all with very high quality of life, there must be some much larger imaginable population whose existence, if other things are equal, would be better, even though its members have lives that are barely worth living. So that, that sounds very counterintuitive, right? Like there's some number, we don't know exactly what it is, uh, Maybe maybe, you know, 10 trillion people who might have all completely miserable lives. But it would be better for all those people to exist than for some smaller number of people to exist all having good lives. Now, how on earth could you arrive at that conclusion? Well... Let's illustrate with an example. Um, And, of course, I'm I'm slightly oversimplifying here because this arises in a discussion alongside another complicated issue known as the non-identity problem. And uh, with respect to the repugnant conclusion, Parfit himself uses an argument with more steps and bar graphs and stuff representing hypothetical human groups and qualities of life. I'm just going to try to get to the heart of it in in a simple and clear way. Let's say you're put in a weird experiment by a godlike consortium of kardashev three level alien scientists who are so technologically powerful that they can make realities come in and out of being at will. And they, uh, they give you two options. They give you the option to make one of two scenarios a reality. Robert, will you take this test? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So scenario one, you get to exist, but I do not get to exist. Imagine again, not really me. You don't know me. I'm just some hypothetical other person yet to be born. In your existence, you have a pretty nice life. You you get really good food. You have a nice house. You get to hang out with friends and family. You have free time, get to exercise and experience nature. You get to read interesting books and pursue creative work. It's pretty great, but I don't exist at all. Now, here's scenario two. Both you and I get to exist You keep everything you had in the previous scenario. You get good material conditions, good relationships and social life, interesting creative projects to explore, etc. Nothing at all changes for you. I, on the other hand, have a less exciting existence. I have a few social relationships, but I only get to talk to people through a glass barrier. And I live in a kind of dank concrete building that's always dimly lit and a little bit too cold. And I get enough food to eat, but it's not very exciting. It's basically just like microwave frozen fish sticks and tater tots and a vitamin supplement to keep me more or less healthy. I can still sort of pursue my interests in my spare time, but I don't have a lot of spare time after all of my Shifts at the uh, Hollywood Acid Factory. (laughs) Now, which scenario would you pick?
3: Oh, this is hard because with the first one, you you kind of had me like, okay, uh, this sounds fine. All you know, my life and my connections and the things I'm invested in those exist, and you don't exist, and so like, there's. you know, you don't really have a dog in the hunt, right? You don't have any skin in the, you literally do not have skin in the game. But then scenario two makes things a lot more difficult because it's like, now it's it's kind of this question of, do you get to exist in this kind of, in this, you know, this more miserable state? Uh, or not like quite miserable, I don't know, depending how you, you frame it. But yeah, it's like then I feel like I am imposing on you
1: if I say you can't exist. Right. Uh, so just imagine all of that is true, but if you asked me, I would say, well, of course I want to exist. I don't want to not exist. Mhm.
3: Yeah, and I I am do not feel it is my place to decide that someone should not exist, you know, due to the the quality of of their life in in this case, you know?
1: I mean, this is a uh, Scenario two puts me in a very tough place. Yeah, and I think most people's intuition when confronted with this problem is that it would be unfair to pick scenario one. Mm-hmm. Even though my existence in scenario two is not ideal, you'd assume that if you asked me, I would still rather exist than not exist, right? So scenario two in this Context is, by most people's intuition, a better world. It's a more preferable world. If you had the option, scenario two would be the better one to bring about. And it's really hard to argue with that reasoning. In order to argue with that reasoning, you'd have to say that you have the power unilaterally to say that other people shouldn't be able to exist and live lives that they might not rate as perfect but still would want to have. But this opens up a very dangerous logic because it means it's possible to increase the desirability of a world – Just by adding to the number of sentient minds that want to keep existing in it. Again, Mm -hmm. this is why it's known as the mere addition problem. That you can create scenarios where it's better to have a world with more minds in it. As long as those minds would say that they want to exist... Even if the average quality of human life is drastically reduced. So like if you took the average quality of my existence and your existence together in scenario two, then it would be lower than the average of your existence alone in scenario one. And then if you obey this maxim that you've set out, now it seems like you're committed to a chain of logic that leads to the conclusion that the value of quantity can overwhelm the variable of quality when it comes to human life. As, as long as most people would rather exist than not, some greater number of lives are preferable to some smaller number, even if the lives in the greater number are pretty abjectly miserable. Mm. Now, I think we should note that this logic would not apply to lives that are so miserable that people would say themselves that they would truly rather cease to exist. Uh, you could think of some kind of like torture, like hell world or something, you know, like if hell existed, right. it would just be better for that to not exist. Yeah, this
3: is the, the, the option we're talking about here it is more in line with, uh, to bring in a, an, another great science fiction example, uh, the Martian colonies in total recall. <laughs> where most people have it pretty horrible there, uh, uh-huh. you know, or at
1: least it's a rough existence. But they would still fight to survive.
3: Yeah, yeah. And they, they get into how, like, the, the early, like, the settlers were just basically living in caves. You know, it was just this, this mm-hmm. brutal, primitive existence. And yet at the same time, like, they, you know, they're, they're not in just constant torture.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, I, I want to be very clear, I, as we said at the beginning, the point of this is not that the repugnant conclusion is correct. It's actually, you know, Derek Parfit highlights this to say, like, this really seems to be incorrect. It really seems to go against our intuitions. So the problem is figuring out what part of the logical chain that gets you there is wrong. Mm. Because, I mean, uh, most people, I think, would say that this is conclusion is incorrect, there are these practical moral implications to it. If it were actually correct, if the repugnant con- conclusion were, really did have moral force, it would have implications like humans should engage in maximal natalism, right? Like the idea that yeah. humans should reproduce as much as possible to create as much human life as we possibly can, because to create less than the maximum possible amount of human life would be immoral. Uh, under this view, if you didn't work to maximize the human population, you're denied Denying future people the right to exist. And again, you know, to many people, that seems intuitively absurd. Why would you trade a world with less people living fulfilling lives for a world with vastly more people living lives, you know, at the edge of what resources they can get to barely survive? Yeah. For instance,
3: you could think about it in terms of uh, cat ownership, you know, like right. one one cat, in my opinion, is enough. Um but you know, I could see myself talked into. All right, we need to get a second cat. This cat needs a home. Uh, let's 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 do it. But then, the more cats you add to a house, uh, the more chaotic it becomes. The, the The more work has to go into taking care of those cats until you reach a point where it's it's just about
1: quantity over quality, right? Right, exactly. Now, again, th- this isn't to uh, assume any particular correlation between the number of people on Earth and their quality of life. I mean, I, I think that um, there are actually some naive assumptions going around about uh, about increasing human populations necessarily always leading to bad outcomes. Uh, I don't think we should uh, we should take those conclusions for granted. But just saying that, like, if you assume at some point, you know, if there were 100 trillion humans on Earth, y- you could can definitely say that that would that would cause problems for the, for ecosystems and stuff.
3: Right, right, and and also just before anybody writes me, if you have multiple cats in your home, I am not judging you. I am just saying that multiple <laughs> cats uh, does not feel right for me personally, my <laughs> personal household. But uh, yeah, I know plenty of people with lots of cats, and they seem quite happy with the uh, situation. <laughs> but but even they, I think, would probably admit that there is there is some
1: threshold right. to cat ownership. <laughs> Right, even if you're 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 a sort of like cat maximalist in a practical sense, you're not really because you're not trying to get 500 cats in your house. You <laughs> yeah, because that's when uh, yeah that's when law enforcement uh, gets involved. Hopefully, right. Um, but then, okay, so, so on, the, on the one hand, you're thinking like, no, that, that can't be right. But then compare it again to our other intuitions that got us there in the first place. Even if you wish the quality of your life were much better, most people would prefer existing over not existing. Even people who are in pain, who lack the things that we desire, we would mostly prefer to be able to exist rather than not exist. And so it would certainly be wrong of us to decide on other people's behalf that their lives are not worth living. Living, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a there's a strong argument for that. Um,
3: you know, we, we do get it. We are getting into I know there, there are all sorts of lights going off in people's heads about varying uh, you know issues. But 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 still, I think that is a for the most
1: part a rational argument. Well, at least it, it's it feels that way. It doesn't necessarily right. mean it's right. So this is a paradox. We've got it seems like we must choose between two conclusions that both feel morally wrong. Hmm. So what are the ways of resolving this paradox? Uh, So the conclusion is widely considered unacceptable. Parfit himself, again, he articulates this, but not to say that the repugnant conclusion is correct. He brings it up to say, like, this is obviously wrong. We have to figure out why this isn't the case. And uh, other philosophers have tried to find ways to avoid the conclusion by, like, questioning some of the premises or introducing other considerations. So, for example, you could argue that maximizing the average quality of human life is the ideal. So, so not like the number of people, but you just want to make the average human life quality as high as possible. But under this model, you'd run into problems. For instance, you could improve the world by killing everyone except the happiest person in it. And then nice. it would have the, the max Maximum average happiness. Uh, then again, you could you could go back against that and say, well, surely killing everyone else would decrease this person's quality of life. Uh, but you can imagine like weird sci-fi hypotheticals to get around this. Maybe, for example, uh, that the best possible world is the one with just one maximally satisfied person living in a simulation of real life, where the wind howls around the you know wasteland bunker that houses the that person's real body. <laughs> yeah that that reminds me of a there was a
3: Zoom meeting that I attended this morning there was like a like a, a like a dad's meeting there's aligned with the, the school where where my son goes and we were all asked to rate our current level of happiness from a <laughs> 1 to a 10 like 1 being like just i just just absolute misery i guess and 10 being like awesome and most of us put in uh sevens i found i put i myself put in a 7 there was like a 7.2 someone had a 7.7 i think somebody somebody was having a tough time and you know put in like a a 6 or a 5 and then one person put in a 10 and I was, I was just like, wow! Like, who? Let, let's hand ownership of the what meeting drugs over are to you this on? person. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are they doing? Where they have the, the, you know, the ten? So in this scenario, it's like just cut out all the sevens and let's just have only the guy with the ten, and uh, and he shall be the, uh, the the population of Earth.
1: Right. So that obviously goes against our moral intuitions as well. It does not feel right that you could you could improve the moral worth of the world just by eliminating all the unhappy people. That's obviously yeah. wrong. Uh, so, yeah, you're still stuck with this problem. And so there are a bunch of ways the different philosophers have have tried to deal with it. Some have introduced like like sort of ad hoc ways of calculating life value that somewhat favor average quality of life but don't totally put that above number of people. I mean, it's just like th- this is clearly a difficult problem to resolve. Some things that we believe in are in tension with each other. Mm-hmm. But ho- however you try to deal with the problem, it is not hard at all to imagine how this thought experiment has an impact on the idea of space exploration and space colonization. Because think about it again, OK? Imagine you're charting out two futures for humanity. And one is a, is a future where we stay here on Earth. And people, you know, uh, there there are varying qualities of life. But let's say, you know, you know, in, in a better future scenario, maybe we we implement some kind of uh, social structure that gets basically everybody on Earth's quality of life up to a certain level, uh, where people have the resources they need, they can pursue creative work, they can they can hang out in a in a un, you know unpolluted natural environment, experience nature, have good social relationships. You know, take a best case scenario there. Still, the number of people who could live on Earth in that scenario is going to be somewhat limited. Hmm. Meanwhile, you could have a lot more potential for human life and human flourishing. And especially if you're playing the odds game against like, you know, what if, you know, we get a space impact or something really bad happens to planet Earth itself. You could have a lot more potential for human life if you were to spread out to other objects throughout the you know throughout the solar system or throughout you know other star systems in the milky way but if you take a pessimistic view of what those would be like you, you can easily imagine how those existences might be pretty crappy you know like you're you're trying to live on mars but The exploration of Mars is in one sense exciting, but also Mars is a horrible place. Mm -hmm. It's just horrible. Like, would you really, (laughs) would you really want to live there in, say, an underground bunker that had to shield you from radiation? And, you know, you're, you're eating these kind of bland foods and, you know, there's only a couple of other people who you can interact with face to face and you can't go outside. You can't see a tree, you know, and, and, and so forth. Yeah. And if you're also looking at a situation where
3: it, it's not even like I'm going to make this this world, this Martian world better for my children, if it's more like, well, in a thousand years, things will be much better. You know, uh, it's it, be, it becomes kind of difficult to, to imagine, you know, getting in the mindset of, um, you know, of, of, the, of, the, of that particular individual.
1: Right. And so this uh, – I feel like this kind of question, the idea of space colonization, in a way is, is one particular scenario for making the paradox of the repugnant conclusion kind of concrete. Like uh, imagining these different options, both of them feel kind of wrong in a way. And this brings us back to
3: uh, Kovac's uh, astronomical population ethics conundrum. Uh, He writes, quote, In the context of space colonization, the repugnant conclusion could mean that a dystopian future in which dozens or hundreds of billions of humans across different habitats in our solar system and beyond live miserable, brutish, anguish-filled lives is a future that is morally preferable to, for example, a future in which there are only a few billion people who live happy lives on Earth. Now, Kovich points out that, yes, this is an extreme possibility, but that it's not unreasonable to presume that life on the off-world colonies would indeed be hard. You know, we've just been discussing how brutal Mars is. I mean, heck, um, I think uh, it's uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for instance, has brought up, look at Antarctica. Antarctica is infinitely more hospitable than Mars. And outside of, what, a few thousand people during the summer and barely a thousand people during the winter, we don't have human life on Earth's fifth largest continent.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, think about how, how uninhabitable, not just Antarctica, like most of Earth is. This is funny, like, you know, Earth is the place we can live, but we can't even live on most of it. Yeah. Most of the surface of the Earth is uninhabitable. It's either ocean, you know, it's open ocean, or it is, you know, desert or uninhabitable tundra, ice sheets. Like, there are actually really just these kind of slivers of the surface that are good for us to settle down on. Yeah. I mean,
3: when you consider, like, the hard surface of the Earth, most of the Earth's surface is is a... Dark, high pressure, uh, you know, deep sea environment uh, <laughs> where where we, we have no place. Uh, so yeah, we are uh, we're clinging to the you know to, to the parts of the world that we can live. And VR technology, you know, we're able to to live in a lot of places that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. But but still, yeah, we uh, again it comes kind of back to the Kardashev scale. Like in in terms of technology and just sort of maximizing our planet. Like we're not even on rung one yet. So, you know, in in trying to imagine people living on an off world -world colony, people born into life on another world would not exist at all if not for the establishment of that colony. So on one hand of the paradox, colonizing other worlds is an inherently moral act. Because, you know, because if if you don't do it, they won't exist. But what if there are not places where happiness and peace are going to be easily found? What if these are harsh frontier colonies, even hell worlds uh, in, you know, to varying degrees that expand the fact of human habitation, but do so via the reality of human suffering? So Kovach connects this to uh, that other standard problem of population ethics that we already mentioned, uh, the non-identity problem, which uh, just to to reiterate that the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy uh, states that it, quote, raises questions regarding the obligations we think we have in respect of people who, by our own acts, are caused both to exist and who have existences that are, though worth having, Uh, unavoidably flawed, existences that is that are flawed if those people are ever to have them at all.
1: Yeah. uh, So on the non-identity problem, again, this is part of the same context in which Derek Parfit's discussion of the repugnant conclusion was described. It's another paradox. It's It takes the same form, showing that where it seems like you have a, a couple of options and they both seem morally wrong due to our intuitions. Uh, so, so he shows that there are three premises that are intuitively true, but they're in conflict with each other. Uh, so first of all, there's the premise of what's known as the person-affecting view. And this is the belief that an act can only be wrong if it harms someone in some way. An act that does no harm to anyone cannot be morally wrong. And of course, this doesn't apply just to physical harm. This would be, you know, any way of making someone's life or situation worse. And if you disagree with this, try to think of something that it's wrong to do, but that would never hurt anyone in any way. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. <laughs> Um, I mean – and so some people might have views about that. I mean some people uh, might adhere to like a a, – what might be called a deontological view of – Morality, where there are just certain things that are, that are moral and immoral, and it actually does not flow from consequentialism, from how it affects other people. But, but I mean, a very common view among philosophers today would be that, you know, there's something about morality that has to involve effects on people. And if something doesn't hurt anyone, it's hard to see how it's wrong. So that's the, the first idea, that, that there is a person-affecting view of morality, that something can only be wrong if it harms someone. The second premise is that bringing a person into existence is not bad for that person, even if their existence is flawed, because being caused to exist is not a reduction in the quality of one's existence. There is no higher baseline from which you are reduced by being caused to exist in the first place. Does that make sense? So it's not like you were doing great before you existed, and then once you existed, that that was like a downgrading of how good you're doing. And then the third premise would be that some acts of bringing people into existence are wrong anyway. Imagine, for example, creating an underworld space colony where the people there are going to be haunted by space Morlocks that hound them every waking second. Like, you (laughs) would think it would be wrong to create that place, right?
3: Uh, yes. Uh, uh, yes. I mean, I'm, tr- I'm trying to env- envision all the ways that, you know, we can reach the space Morlocks and change them and, <laughs> and, and you know, bring space Morlocks and human colonists together. But uh, but it does sound pretty daunting.
1: Yeah. And so uh, this is a, a, another problem along these lines. Uh, to, to a lot of philosophers, all of these premises seem correct, but they can't all be right at the same time. They're in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. So Kovic weighs in on this, he says, In the case of our dystopian space
3: colonization thought experiment, however, the horrible future is not actually bad for anyone. If it weren't for our dystopian space colonization activities, all those billions of people beyond Earth who live miserable lives barely worth living would not exist at all. From the point of view of those future people, then their miserable lives are still preferable to the alternative, which is not having come into existence at all. The fact that they were brought into their miserable existence was therefore not morally bad for them.
1: And and this basically is the second premise I mentioned a a minute ago, that it's not bringing someone into existence can't be bad for them because it does not constitute a downgrading or reduction in their quality of life. They didn't have a baseline to start from. Yeah. So Kovic he ends up contending that
3: via these problems, enabling a future of space colonies is at least less morally desirable than other alternatives, but perhaps even morally questionable. And this brings us to the next phase of his consideration, and that is astronomical suffering in off-world human populations.
1: All right, well, let's take a break, and then we can come back and uh, explore some suffering. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
3: All right, we're back. Uh, astronomical suffering, deep hurting. If you were a, a Cenobite, then you may, you may have skipped forward uh, to this portion of the podcast because you just want some good suffering. Uh, so Kovich <laughs> contends
1: the pain of the Mars colony will be legendary even in hell.
3: Yeah, this is where they should have gone in uh you imagine if if we could do a read a redo of Hellraiser 3. Um no, Hellraiser Wait, 4. 3. 4. 4. The space
1: one. 3 uh, is <laughs> w- the one with the with the like disco club and is it in England or I think it's All in right. the US. Oh, okay, yeah. I can't remember it's the Del one while. With, with the camera head cenobite and the CD cenobite.
3: Yes. Yeah, the fourth one is in space and is largely incomprehensible. But imagine if it had uh, decided to explore astronomical suffering instead. So Kovic contends that increasing maximum total well-being is questionable if the amount of suffering in the universe also increases. But he goes on to argue that the astronomical non-identity problem is the question of suffering. Quote, merely maximizing total well-being is questionable if at the same time the amount of suffering is increased to such a degree that average well-being decreases. The problem, the increase in suffering through space colonization can be understood uh, as, a, uh, as a risk sui so generous or unique problem. Uh, one, and that is astronomical suffering. So part of the, you know, the certainty here entails suboptimal conditions for future humans in other worlds, worlds where any any of the sci fi scenarios we've already discussed uh, could potentially come to life. Like anything you've ever seen in a science fiction film where off worlders uh, have it hard, you know. Living in caves, uh, depending on ailing or, or even failing technology, having to live with astonishingly high levels of radiation sickness, uh, having your health impacted by, uh, by uh, microbiota on this other world or some sort of disrupted microbiota that you've brought with you. You know, things are out of sync. Um, worlds where humans have to endure harsh conditions due to heat, cold, uh, or both in the case of like a tidally locked world, high pressure, low gravity, high gravity caustic atmosphere, resource scarcity, dangerous native biology, electromagnetic field anomalies, and heightened NEO activity, just to name a few. And he also mentions the idea of invasive biology brought by, uh, by the colonists themselves, as well as a, a few technical possibilities. Uh, one, the future simulations of sentient beings, which is something we've discussed on the show before, uh, the idea that, you know, you're, you're dealing with a, a heightened level of technology to even establish these worlds. So does that also bring about all the, the problems of, say, creating sentient life inside a simulation? And then putting it in a hell box and then copy and pasting that hell box, say, a million times, (laughs) you know, Um, like that's that's a horrible idea. I think we got into that a bit in the Basilisk episode. Sure. And then he also brings up misaligned artificial intelligence. Um, So we also have to deal with the possibility of uh, of A.I. uh, coming online and uh, in part of the scenario and being part of the the overall uh, unhappiness of part of the overall uh, suffering of the universe. Still, the author contends that the scenarios that could lead to astronomical suffering are vague, and the conclusions we might draw not altogether clear. On one hand, it's possible that space colonization could result in astronomical human suffering, uh, and then this would this, if this were the case, it would obviously be a disvalue. On the other hand, it's possible that, it, that space colonization could result in an increase in human well-being, uh, but a huge decrease in non-human well-being uh, in terms of... Um, you know the well-being of of other organisms. Uh, this, you know, because potentially non-human organisms, sentient uh, and or non-sentient digital entities that are denied human status, uh, it could also affect you know general AIs in this uh, universe that we're imagining. On the other hand, he also adds that such colonization could be a force of good regarding AIs. I thought this was interesting. Quote: It is also possible that space colonization could result in the reduction of astronomical suffering. If humankind were able to, for example, detect and correct misaligned extraterrestrial artificial intelligence, that could reduce or prevent enormous amounts of suffering. Of course, the existence of extraterrestrial artificial intelligence is itself also a highly uncertain proposition. So I guess the idea here is like if we if we were to venture out and we discover an alien AI that, you know, for instance, has created digital hell worlds full of of digital sentient beings that are being suffered we could we could correct that AI we could wage a holy war <laughs> against that digital hell, which is exactly uh this is actually a, a major plot point in the M. banks uh, novel um, uh, that, uh, that that that's', that's really explored uh, wonderfully I've discussed it on the show before uh, but but yeah this would be this would be one specific and granted you know um far-fetched scenario in which we could potentially uh, uh, improve uh, the, the state of suffering in the universe. If we win. Yeah, if we win, that's <laughs> right. Because, yeah, because, I don't know, the idea of encountering extraterrestrials, much less extraterrestrial AIs, uh, there's a lot of factors to consider there.
1: Or what if we're the bad guys and we win? The, then, then, of course, well, I guess he acknowledges it could go both ways, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could, the other side of it is, yeah, is we—, we We sort of fulfill what has largely been the human nature of exploration and we encounter the other civilization and bring misery and horror to it. So he contends that there are so many unknowns that to avoid such colonization would ultimately be uh, it would be it would be Pascal's wager all over again. Right. Uh, The idea that Pascal's wager essentially we've discussed it in more depth in the show before, but essentially boiling down to, well, should I believe in God or not believe in God to be on the safe side? I'll just go ahead and believe in him just in case.
1: Now, Pascal's wager, I think uh, people who have boned up on their philosophy might notice that there are a lot of hidden assumptions in Pascal's yes. wager that yeah. uh, that make it maybe not as forceful as it would have seemed to uh, Pascal's audience at the time.
3: Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, he ultimately says that we get into similar territory here, but that nevertheless, uh, given the dimension of risk, he says the problem of astronomical suffering is certainly something – that we should pay attention to, we should think about, uh, you know, that, that in leaving the planet or just in considering the future of humanity, uh, like that is, that is one possibility, that is like one road to stagnation that we have to uh, at least consider. A few other ideas that he raises here. Uh, first of all, he says, you know, he drives home again, space colonization is not a risk-free venture and shouldn't be approached as such. So, yeah, it, even though it is often just kind of optimistic vision in the back of our heads, uh, then maybe we should we should try and counterbalance that with a, a little bit of uh, of, of, uh, of astronomical suffering. He also admits that it might actually be too late in some respects, uh, as this dream is just so seductive to already be the implicit goal of public as well as private space related ventures and ambitions. And also he drives home, and this is actually, I think, something he gets into in that Ian magazine piece he wrote, that a meaningful governance framework will be important.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in that article, he gets into the fact that, like, we just really do not have a, a political framework establishing authority in outer space. And, right. and the, we see that in even our, our current headlines stuff yeah. comes up where we're like, "Whoa, wow, there's just there's just really no rules yet. And uh, on one hand, like, I can see how this might feel nice like whoa wow you know what you know the, the government's reach stops at the planet and and outer space can just be this place of uh, of peaceful exploration without any you know like laws and militaries and all that that would be great but as space becomes more populated with uh, you know people seeking out their their own ends and their own goals there without a legal framework for people to understand you know what is allowed what they can do and and uh, you know predict what other people will be allowed to do to them it starts to become you know less less of a uh, final frontier and more of a wild west absolutely um This
3: is how Kovic rounds it all out. Quote, the overview of risks and the outline of a potential approach to crafting governance presented in this article are preliminary at best. Both issues, uh, the identification of colonization-related risks and the work on colonization-related governance, require more scholarly attention uh, before we can begin addressing them in practice. That attention, theoretical though it may seem, is warranted. Space colonization is humankind's best bet for long-term survival. And today, before large-scale space colonization efforts are underway, we still have the capacity to develop the philosophical and practical guardrails uh, that make the worst outcomes of space colonization less likely.
1: And and you know I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I think that totally makes sense. That like space colonization is something that that requires uh, a bit of pessimistic forethought. Like you know people should entertain ideas of what could go wrong and uh, mm-hmm. and explore them and and plan out contingencies, um, especially you know like people who aren't doing space exploration themselves because you, you might think that there there are some cognitive and and group cognitive biases probably at work in organizations that are personally involved in space exploration and the exploitation of resources in space.
3: Yeah, plus you know when we have you know just sort of casual ideals of what the future will be like in the back of our head it, it again it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier with its link to en- environmentalism and 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 and, and how one could sort of use it as a way to excuse uh, harm to Earth's environment, you know, it's if you have just a completely optimistic vision in the back of your head, it can potentially skew the way you look at the real world or consider other uh, political or technological
1: issues. Yeah, yeah. Um... So, so this has been interesting. It's gotten me thinking. This was a topic that uh, that you turned up and wanted to do. So, Robert, I'm I'm curious, like, what your opinion is. Like, do you, do you come down more on one side or the other? We obviously we've explored how there seem to be, at least at first glance, strong moral hazards for both of the two options, either for staying on Earth or for founding colonies on other objects in the solar system and beyond. Do you lean one way or the other? Yeah, I think reading about this
3: has made me lean more towards just the idea that we should we should be cautious and we should think about the problems because I guess in you know it, you know through the consumption of science fiction and and also, you know, futurist uh, thought on the subject. You know, I'd always just I think I'd always just kind of fallen into the category of thinking, well, you know, it's going to be rough uh, in many of these cases. We are talking about harsh environments, but it'll it will be worth it. Like, you know, this is just this is just what humans do uh, without really stopping to to ask, well, you know, why is that the case? And does it have to be that hard, uh, you know, or, or what should we potentially consider to mitigate uh, the, the suffering uh, on these other worlds? Like do these various sci-fi visions not so much the really pessimistic and nihilistic ones, but the more middle of the road ones, like, does it have to be that way? Could it be more could it be more Star Trek, you know? could mm-hmm. you lean into star trek more as uh, again coming back to the, the the more utopian vision of the future
1: and and this is something that i feel like we may have a false sense that we have explored these problems more than we actually have in the practical space because mm-hmm. we now have lots of astronauts who have devoted their lives to getting into and spending time in space. You know, we have astronauts that walked on the moon. We have astronauts that trained to go to the International Space Station. And they all do it voluntarily. Like they want to go there. They're not being forced uh, despite all of the deprivations that they experience and and all of the you know, potential. Potentially negative health effects and so forth that come along with these experiences. But those are, in the long run, these are actually quite limited commitments. These are people committing themselves and themselves only to a period of, I don't know, a number of weeks or months at a time going into these deprived environments, these altered environments. It is a very different thing, actually, to say we're going to found a permanent or semi-permanent colony within these spaces where you not only commit yourself for much longer periods of time, but you're also potentially committing future generations of people born there and so forth. And you're creating a, 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 you know, a, a fragmented off new culture in a sense. Yeah and in
3: that we we have to engage in the sort of long-term thinking that that you know generally doesn't come naturally to to humans uh that we have to to work very hard at. You know I also have to say this will probably uh factor into how I read uh future science science fiction treatments of off-world colonies, you know. Mhm. And, and and like I say some of these concerns I think have already been reflected to varying degrees in scientific science fictional creations so um you know it's not like you know i'm saying that this is going to to change other uh artists visions in all cases uh but it is additional um food for thought in the meantime if you would like to check out other episodes of stuff to blow your mind uh well previously i would have directed you to the mothership uh to stuff to blow your com, but the mothership (laughs) crashed and now we only have uh the off-world colony of our um our iHeart uh, listing for the podcast, if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, it will send you over to there. But we have we have colonies in other places as well, because you can ultimately find Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, those are the ways you can uh, support those little off-world digital colonies, and in doing so, uh, uh, support Stuff
1: to Blow Your Mind itself. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen.